0: Drink and Read Presents, War and Peace, Volume 3, Part 2, Chapters 27 through 39. This will be... The Battle of Borodino, this will be the one we've waited for. This will be a battle that's so bloody, ho yeah. oh, ho. Oh, oh. I'm so glad I made it to the front lines in time, and I'm so glad that Andre made up his mind This will be The last time we may ever See each other Baby, oh Napoleon brought A lot of pain into my life He filled me with existential dread I never knew He gave me more stress Than I ever dreamed of And now it's Now it's time to give you Das Boot This will be You and me, so bloody Finally, shooting and gunning and missin' and running. You're French, but whatever deep down rush is better. So long as I'm breathing, you know I'll be scheming. And you will be firing, cause all you've been done is lying. Oh, you've been lying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, oh, oh. a bang, a bang, a bang, a bang. So move on and get out and be gone from now on. Hello, I'm Jonathan Kwiatkowski, and we're about to read some good shit. Welcome back to another episode of Drink and Read, the eminent war and peace podcast with a little side of comedy. When we last left our tireless Tolstolians, the Battle of Borodino was the biggest tease, and I do apologize for that, but today we have finally arrived, the battle is here. In addition to that, Nikolai and Princess Mary may have been making goo goo eyes at one another, and it was kind of cute. Mary came out of her shell a bit. Finally, all it took was losing her father andre's dead inside once more he caught up with Denyazov and kutuzov who is a surrogate father figure for him now that he doesn't have any dad yet again and pierre arrived at the front lines to do something pick up a gun and start shooting but he was dressed to the tens he tried to have a tete-a-tete with andre and it wound up not meeting expectations And the last thing i recall is that napoleon was parading around a picture of his son as the new emperor of rome suffice to say that baby was on board for the battle of borodino prior to the moment which i know is coming when pierre goes up to the artillery and looks you know sticks his eye into the cannon barrel I have a few things to say. This is Drink and Read, so we have two sections, one being the appendices where I point out my mistakes and foibles. I am convinced I switched Kutuzov's and Denyazov's names multiple times during that last episode. It's confusing, okay? There's a lot of characters, but Kutuzov is general in charge, eye patch dude, father figure for Andre, and Denyazov is... The one who proposed to Natasha in the past but got shot down because she was a 12-year-old girl or so at the time. He speaks with a rough German accent, but he's endearing nonetheless, and he obviously wanted to present Emperor Alexander with his genius battle plan to save lives. Good to see him still around. And as much as I wanted to linger on Napoleon's story, we're gonna get plenty of that in today's chapters for this episode, so there is no time to dally. Forgive me for my mistakes, and thank you for listening. But this is Drink and Read. What am I drinking today? I'm drinking something strong at the time of recording this episode. Easter was yesterday. I need a little shot in my system, so I'm having some bullet bourbon straight. It is a Monday. Another week, another few chapters, and I'm going to think that these soldiers are going to need a drink or two when they're done with this battle. If they survive. So much like the bullets flying overhead, there's no stopping us now. Let's head right into the meat and potatoes. Beginning with Volume 3, Part 2, Chapter 27. It is August 25th, the day before the Battle of Borodino begins, and Napoleon is riding around the battlefield getting tactical. And in this chapter, we learn that all it takes to be a cunning general is to not know what the fuck you're doing and just make it up on the fly because that's what Napoleon is trying to do and it's a complete and utter shitshow. He's on horseback, looking regal no doubt, and just looking over the battlefield, talking with his constituents, his generals, the people below him, saying that's a good idea, whatever you say, put an artillery over there, put some troops over there, and then rides off before he can give a full answer to any imperative questions. Then Tolstoy goes off on a tangent and says, Napoleon is shit and here are the reasons why he's shit. Number one, he ordered the artillery placed in an area where it has no hopes of reaching the Russian forces and they don't have enough guns to do so next he's telling generals to go to different places and they're actually blocking each other's progress to said places so it's a bit of a traffic jam and the battlefield of borodino if you're thinking about getting there you should have left a little earlier huh next napoleon or any general cannot truly predict the future no matter how experienced you are because one of napoleon's generals tries to show up to the spot he's designated at and the russians come out and surprise fire at him so he's unable to get there and Tolstoy says that none of Napoleon's plans were truly carried out, but Napoleon didn't know about that that day because he was so far away from the battlefield that news couldn't reach him. So he gave some orders, trotted his horse away, and just, you know, sat back sipping a mimosa. Just me as Miranda Priestley going to Napoleon. Why is nobody ready? Needless to say, things are not looking so good for Napoleon which we would think would be a positive, but in the lens of this novel, you know, the Russians are a protagonist Here, we know them a little bit better, but they're not as prepared as they should be either. Chapter 28, Tolstoy poses the question to us, dear readers, who truly won the Battle of Borodino? And the answer that he surmises is, no one really won the battle. Napoleon's excuse as to why he didn't win the Battle of Borodino the next day is the same reason that you used to get out of your algebra test in high school. I have a little bit of a cold. (coughs) (coughs) That's the only reason why I didn't kill more Russians. But Tolstoy snarkily insinuates, Sure, Jan. Now, if you remember, André gave us his own theory as to how battles are won. If you do not have the audacity, the nerve, the gall, and the gumption, then you are doomed to lose from the start. So was Napoleon's heart truly in winning this battle and, you know, changing world history? Hard to say. But from what we've read, I don't think. But to raise another point, Tolstoy says Napoleon didn't actually kill anyone. He was so far away from the battle, didn't raise a finger, so he's not responsible for killing any Russians, despite that's what he is thinking, maybe. What is the truth is that Russians killed French soldiers and French soldiers killed Russians. It is evident that no one can claim the credit, but since Napoleon was in power and had a prestigious history, historians say that napoleon was there to represent the uh, power struggle that was going on during the battle at that time you always need a spearhead you always need a mascot you always need a theme chapter 29 answers the question what was napoleon doing the night before the battle i know we all want to know and much like me with a case of the sunday sads, he was eating drinking and complaining all night long He's double-checking, is everything in order? Have the troops been fed? Is everyone in their places for the show tomorrow? He's sucking on a lozenge and complaining that I'm tired of this cold, I can't smell or taste anything. Oh, man up, Napoleon. I never met the guy. But if he acted like this, people call me a drama queen? Mm. Napoleon's restless, pacing back and forth, he cannot sleep, goes outside the tent, sees a soldier standing there and goes, You there, boy, what year did you enlist? Here's the information, silently nods, and then walks away. Great talk, Napoleon. The next morning, Napoleon wakes up unrefreshed and heads out to the nearby town of Chevardino, which is in the Borodino area, I assume. And as he's riding, shots ring out. The battle has finally begun. Ding, ding, ding. Place your bets now. Spin the roulette wheel of fate. And let's see where everything lands when the chips are down. If you have any favorite minor characters that may be fighting in this battle at the moment, um... You know, maybe say a last little prayer for them? Get out the sad comedic trombone, because chapter 30 starts with Pierre Bezukhov sleeping in and missing the start of the battle. He had just returned from Andres the night before where they gave their final goodbyes in quotations to one another, fell asleep, and wakes up to the windows rattling, and his groom shoving him and going, Wake up, sir, please, the battle's started already, we need to get the fuck out of here. But Pierre goes, Has it started? And Pierre, ever the odd duck, goes out to the battlefield, and instead of being horrified of the people running around screaming and shooting going on, he's enthralled. He says he's never seen such a beautiful sight. Look at all the greenery. Look at the soldiers. Look at each man having his own purpose. And here I am. It's a beautiful day. Pierre goes on this whole artistic monologue about the smoke emanating from the cannons and the guns and the glistening uh, shine on the bayonets and how everyone around him seems to appear warm and jovial that this battle is happening. No, Pierre, you need to get out of there. You might die. He sees Kutuzov standing off at a distance, going to one of his generals and saying, "Uh, may God be with you. Go down there. Pierre goes, I'm going to follow that general, too. Pierre tries to mount his horse, struggles with it, his glasses are falling off, he can barely hold on to it, but he does pursue this general. Chapter 31, Pierre loses sight of this general, almost instantly, and starts trudging into this main battle happening, and invades the space of this battalion the men look up and go what is this fat well-dressed man on a horse doing in the middle of our battle and pierre just continues to ride on he goes why should i stay back here i should charge head on into the fray where there's more room for my corpulent form pierre says corpulent form we say bigger target Pierre reaches this bridge called the Kolocha, and this is what the entire pinnacle of the battle is being fought over because it's separating Borodino from the other side, and Pierre doesn't realize that the French is on one side and the Russians are on the other, and the Russian soldiers are going, what are you doing, you idiot? Don't charge there. Turn right, turn left. He immediately turns right and clocks into an adjutant for someone he knows, General Ravsky's adjutant. Apparently he knows Pierre, and he gives him the side eye, and is like, what the fuck are you doing? This adjutant suggests to Pierre that he would do better at the barrow because it's safer, so please follow him. I'm taking time out of my busy warfare to make sure that you're okay. Pierre glances around and notices the dead bodies and is about to raise questions like, why did they pick up that guy and not that guy over there? Just dumb, dumb, very stupid questions, Pierre. And as Pierre is following on his horse, the adjutant says, You must not have rode often. Your horse is walking a little weird. And Pierre goes, Well, she is bouncing a lot. I wonder what's wrong with her. And the dude goes, My God, your horse has been shot in the leg. Congratulations, Pierre. You've received the baptism of fire. Um, no, get off that poor horse. What are you doing? They reach the barrow, which is noticeably safer in quotation marks again, and the adjutant says, "Just wait here; I'll come receive you later on." And Pierre learns later that day that that dude has his arm blown off. So great, this battery, known as the Aravsky Battery, is actually very far from safe, as the French want to claim it as its prime real estate on the battlefield, and thousands die surrounding it. So Pierre is in a hot spot. And these men working this poor battery, you know, getting cannon fire or whatever, setting up their shots, are all noticeably agitated... And very stressed out, and Pierre is just sitting there smiling, going, it's like a family dinner. And initially, these soldiers are like, you can't sit here, buddy. You need to move out of the way. We've got a job to do. And they're like, what the hell is this guy doing here? But the more he sits there and just smiles and walks out of the way and is politely just like hemming and hawing and humming at the battle going on, they're like, oh, okay, this dude is a little crazy, but we have sympathy for him, just as we have sympathy for our dogs and cats back home. Pierre then receives the nickname, because he's dressed so fancifully, on the battlefield of Our Master. And Pierre sees a family bond start building between him and these strangers, and they're just joking and laughing and making small talk, calling each other pet names as cannonballs are flying overhead, smashing wheels and legs, and it's as if nothing else is going on in the world. Like it's a Monty Python sketch or something. And as they're firing, these Russians are getting lower and lower on ammo, going, we only have eight shots left. Pierre notices that the cannonballs keep getting closer. Some lay near him, spattered dirt into his eye, but he's still walking away, miraculously unharmed, noticing the chaos. When asked to go get some uh, shells for the cannon, Pierre immediately volunteers and goes, I'll go. But they ignore him because he wouldn't know what's what, and they set off on their own. And as Pierre is scooting down the hill to go get the uh, shells that he has no idea what they look like or whatever, or how he's going to carry them, he notices that three cannonballs go off right around him, thinks about turning back, but proceeds to go forward, then suddenly a cannonball strikes so close to him that he's knocked unconscious for a few moments. When he comes to, he gets the pleasant war sight of a horse that he was familiar with, dragging half of its battered, butchered, and dead body along the ground screaming how pleasant pierre and it is here that pierre realizes war is a horrible thing go figure chapter 32 pierre wakes up gets over that horse dragging itself by its uh, you know barely working entrails and books it back to the battery, where he finds that the battery officer is dead and that the um, space around is kind of quiet. And Pierre goes, brothers, where are you? And sees this thin French man running at him with a sword that he drops. And he grabs Pierre by the collar. Pierre grabs him by the collar. And they both awkwardly stare at each other for a long moment, going, what the heck are we doing? A few more cannonballs sail overhead, and both Pierre and this French soldier look at each other and go, what the heck are we doing? Let go of each other and run in different directions. The French have claimed the battery, and Pierre runs down the hill, seeing a mixture of French and Russian casualties being pulled out on stretchers, and he's thinking to himself, well, surely after all this violence, the war must be over. It's got to stop at some point, right? And Tolstoy lets us know that, no, Pierre, the war is just beginning. Chapter 33, Napoleon is reenacting the song When Smoke Gets In Your Eyes because he's facing the sun and smoke is covering the battlefield so he can't make out a gosh darn thing. And as he's standing on this hill a very good distance away from the battle itself, adjutants are riding up to him, giving him news such as, we've taken this bridge, we've lost this bridge, and he's trying to update them with orders. But since no one knows what's going on and all these orders are being shouted at randomly everywhere, It doesn't make any sense, and no one knows exactly what they're doing. I'm beginning to believe that Tolstoy's theory of random chance is the truth. And these soldiers, these generals, can only deliver news essentially devoted to -to hand-to-hand combat, but even Tolstoy comments that wars are not won by hand-to-hand combat, they're won by gunfire and cannon fire. Chapter 34, Napoleon's generals, Devout Murat are fighting the good fight, but they realize as the battle keeps drawing on that they need reinforcements, so they send word to Napoleon, give us more men. Napoleon takes a look at this request and thinks to himself, this has never happened to me, my brilliant strategic mind before, they never needed reinforcements, so I'm not going to give them to them now. And as Napoleon refuses these reinforcements, his generals essentially shrug, look downwards, and sigh, going, Okay, Prince of Rome. Through Napoleon's own ego and the ass-kissing of his generals to Napoleon, it is evident that he's been able to compartmentalize the fact that he may be losing this battle. When Napoleon takes it upon himself to go and give the battle a look-see, he sees that his general's faces are downtrodden and sad, very difficult to hide your emotions when you're losing a battle, and the wheels start to turn in Napoleon's head, feeling as if he's a gambler who struck out after a lucky streak. And he's riding, seeing this wall of Russians just slaughtering his troop after giving some reinforcements to them, And a general goes up to him and says, maybe you should send in the old guard, you know, the rear guard, your personal guard in. Napoleon goes with, so close to victory, I will not see my rear guard slaughtered in this moment. So there's that folly of pride again. Napoleon will not stoop to conquer. Now that could be a play. Does Napoleon feel like he's defeated in this moment? It seems that way. But perhaps he won't give up just yet. Chapter 35, Kutuzov is sitting and chilling in a very calm, serene state as his generals and his adjutants are bringing him news of things happening on the battlefield. He knows that through his own personal experience that his control is kind of up in the air. He could say or claim credit, but it doesn't really, you know, cash the check. So by appearing calm and uncaring, he can go whichever way the wind blows and decide on the battle strategies from there. When the news that one of Napoleon's generals Marat has been taken prisoner, Kutuzov goes, make sure the news is spread to our own troops because this will help boost up the morale and any good morale will do wonders in this battle. In the afternoon, the French side appears to be stopping, and Kutuzov is satisfied for the action of the day. He retires to dinner, but he is old and fat, and he feebly falls asleep in his chair. He's half sleeping, half listening. He's just old. He's had a very rough life. Let Kutuzov rest, and he knows this isn't the time, but eh, he's the best general we got in the book so far. And at this dinner meeting, Kutuzov is eating with Wolzogen, who's the imperial adjutant, hated by brigration and a lot of people, and he's just making snide inner remarks about how Kutuzov is old and feeble and he doesn't really know what's going on and he's gonna get all the credit for this war. And I think he does this because he's instructed to, but at the same time, he's relishing in his own side, kind of taking heavy losses. He goes, "Uh, Kutuzov, when I was on the battlefield, I saw some Russians scampering in the other direction. Kutuzov replies, well, you know, they're going to do what they can to save their own hide in a moment's notice, but we can't blame them for that. And... Wolz again suggests that the Russians are going to lose this. Kutuzov gets very upset, says, How dare you, sir? You don't know what you're talking about. Kutuzov tells Wolz again to go tell General Barclay that at his next earliest opportunity, probably tomorrow, he's going to repulse the French away even further. And it's that by God's grace and the skill of his army that they have survived so long. And then he breaks into tears. He actually cares about what's going on. Kutuzov is not a bad guy. Another general, Ravsky, who's been mentioned previously and stood his ground at the center of the battlefield, pleasing Kutuzov, comes up and delivers some good news. As these two are talking, uh, Wolzogun comes back and says the general would like this in written words before he carries out this order. Just always snarking up. Just do what you're supposed to do. Kutuzov writes this silently with his eyes, tells whoever to write this declaration, and since it's an army, word travels quickly, and everybody knows that there's going to be another push tomorrow. Tolstoy explains that uh, Kutuzov's act of solidarity inspires the Russian soldiers, that they are no longer fighting alone, they're all under one banner head, and that this announcement of another push tomorrow will convince them to do their best as the battle continues. Chapter 36, let's see how Andre is handling this battle. Andre's troop is in reserve, and where you would think this is a safe place for them to be, they've already lost a third of this troop due to heavy fire and gunshot wounds. Due to this, there is a very tense atmosphere in the air where the soldiers are looking to Andre as a leader, and Andre is looking inwards going, I don't really know how to handle this situation, so I'm half bored, half scared out of my gourd. And all these men with nothing better to do other than to contemplate how they're probably going to die soon, take up menial tasks such as walking back and forth, pacing, crumbling leaves between their hands, because there's nothing that they can do. Andre has taken to pacing in the neighboring meadow, stepping into footsteps of soldiers who have gone by, and just flummoxed at the fact that there's nothing that he can order himself or his troops to do. As he's pacing, one of his adjutants yells, look out, a cannon shell lands near him, scares a horse, and Andre is wounded. Um, he's on the ground thinking, like, I don't want to die yet, I haven't experienced life, oh my goodness, all those regrets come welling forward. And then he realizes that he's totally fine, but his adjutant next to him is freaking the fuck out. And taking the more often traveled machismo route, Andre starts to yell at this adjutant, but before he can get out his full insult, another shell hits Andre and he is thrown sideways. He's knocked out, but has enough sense to realize that one of his sides is bleeding profusely. Around him, the battle is still going on. It carries on as if Andre wasn't needed in the first place. They put him on a stretcher and take him to the barrack situation where they're kind of uh, mending the wounds and dressing the wounds of the soldiers who have gotten injured. And it's not described as a wonderful place. There are crows circling overhead because they're, you know, they sense blood as scavengers. Andre is brought to his senses out of this delirium by another soldier sharing his experiences on the battlefield. And Andre, even though he doesn't know exactly where he is, what's going on, and what's happening, goes, Have I lived the life that I wanted to live? Have I done and accomplished everything that I've set out to do? And the resounding feeling is, No, he hasn't. Chapter 37, Andre gets some benefits for being so high up in the army in the fact that he can have surgery now instead of waiting with the writhing, yelling, screaming, dying masses that are surrounding him. Don't mind me, I'm just gonna cut to the front of the line. And some of the peasants that are there who are injured goes, well, looks like even in the next world the masters will get the best piece of the cake too, huh? And inside the medic's tent is a hell of its own, filled with bloody bodies writhing and screaming out in pain. It is not a pretty sight. There's three tables to operate on available in the tent, and Andre gets the third, and while he's waiting his turn, he's looking at the people next to him, and one of them is just some dude getting something cut out of his back. And of course, there is no technology for anesthesia, they are doing it while he is still conscious, and he is screaming in pain. And then the dude on the other side of him is having something done to his leg. Interesting. Hold that thought for a moment andre is undressed and passes out from the pain when he comes to he's learns that he had a shattered hip that has been loosely repaired and stitched up and then oddly enough when he sees the doctor the doctor leans over kisses him on the lips and then runs away i don't know if this is like a a russian culture thing or a medic thing but it's odd But with this kiss and the realization that he is now alive, Andre experiences a sort of rush going, okay, I'm alive, now I really gotta make this time count. This is probably like the 80th time that I've almost died. He's brought out of this stupor from more cries of pain going, show me, show me, from another dude that happened to be on the side of Andre, getting his legwork done. And just the cries alone, Andre recognizes something. Is that voice familiar? It inspires a sense within me. And this man has had his leg shorn completely off one of them. But who could it be? It's none other than Anatole Karagin, the man that stole Natasha away from Andre in the first place, has had his leg removed from his person, involuntarily. Anatole is crying, and Andre goes through his mind and goes, I should be mad at this man, I should say that's his just desserts for taking Natasha away from me, but... He remembers the fond memories that he shared with Natasha and in those memories feels that he is my fellow man, I am so sorry that this has happened to you, and he begins to cry for Anatole as well, which is a great character arc for Andre. He's had this pent-up aggression, the need for revenge, and it washes away in an instant when he realizes we're all human. And that any pain one of us experiences, no matter how bad, it is a shared pain. And as he's sitting there weeping, he recalls the words of his sister Mary going, you need to love your fellow man. And in that love, you will find God's love. And it all makes sense to him. And Andre questions himself, have I waited too long? Is there room in my heart to love my fellow man and receive God's love? Or is it too late for me? And we will catch back up with Andre. but I believe... That's kind of the last we hear about Anatole Karagin. As Natasha said previously, don't call him bad because he's not in a very good situation right now either. In chapter 38, Napoleon is perusing the battlefield and shocked, disgusted by the amount of dead bodies that he sees piled up on top of one another and the complete and utter bloodshed. I think it's safe to say that Napoleon has worse problems than a cold this morning. All this death around him reminds him of the most important person in his life being himself, and how he is destined to die someday too an adjutant rides up to him and goes, the Russians are still coming, do we dare fire at them even stronger, Napoleon says, they want more, give them more, goes on his horse and vanishes into some beautiful poetry that Tolstoy writes here, and even without his order they were doing what he wanted, and he gave the instruction only because he thought an order was expected of him, and again he was transferred to his former artificial world of phantoms of some sort of greatness, and again, as a horse walking. about a slanting treadmill imagines it is doing something for itself, he began to obediently fulfill the cruel, sad, oppressive, and inhuman role which had been assigned to him. There's more of that Tolstoy going, Napoleon is kind of the antagonist of the novel, but even he can't argue against fate. And not only for that hour and day where reason and conscience darkened in this man who, more than all the other participants in this affair, bore upon himself the whole weight of what was happening, but never to the end of his life was he able to understand goodness, or beauty, or truth, or the meaning of his own actions which were too much the opposite of goodness and truth and too far removed from everything human for him to be able to grasp their meaning. He could not renounce his actions extolled by half the world, and therefore he had to renounce truth and goodness and everything human. Tolstoy suggesting that he is a bad man, but he never really thought of himself in that manner. And judging by Tolstoy's opinion on Napoleon, when he writes the letter at the end of this chapter explaining or reasoning why he started this war in the first place to unite all of Europe so no one would ever want for anything, I believe it's bullshit. So, with hundreds of thousands of people dead, Napoleon can't really take the blame for himself, and there's no one to blame but the cruel hand of fate in this scenario, but. I'm sure, at least in my opinion, that mankind has brought it upon themselves. And I apologize for the downer situation that is these chapters, especially when we arrive on the last chapter of today's episode, chapter 39. This chapter is just a description of the immense amount of dead decorating this beautiful, serene battlefield, and how in both of the uh, fighting sides' regards, they were just a small push away from victory. And truly, no one's won this. The Russians were dead set in protecting Moscow, and the French just wanted to decimate as much of the Russian troops as they could. The Russians have lost half of their overall number. It's not pleasant. And on the French side, even though they've only lost a fourth of their general number, Napoleon's heart and the French people's heart aren't in it anymore. There's been too much loss on this day, and historians suggest that if Napoleon sent in his final guard as one last push, they could have easily taken Moscow. This sends Napoleon retreating, although not in his own words, back from whence he came and to his inevitable defeat... Um, understanding that the Russians have put up a good fight, even though they lost half their number, they still will not back down and let Napoleon conquer them. And with that, this week's episode of Drink and Read has come to a close. Remember, as always, um, it's always very much appreciated if you leave this podcast a rating, a review, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, or more. Thank you so much in advance, and it really does help out. If you've liked what you've heard, or you just want to mock me openly, please feel free to check out my other podcasts on most podcasting platforms. They include Nightcaps at the Theater, where myself and my friends Mark Zebro Jr. and Matthew Cabrera take a look at some movies and get a little drizzy drunk while doing so. Currently on hiatus, but you never know, we may come back. And then if you want something that's more up-to-date weekly, I have an anime-adjacent podcast entitled Anime Was Not a Mistake, where me and my host, co-host, Daniel Ryan Ryan, check out some anime and anime-adjacent movies, and it's a lot of fun. Next time, though, we return to War and Peace, Volume 3, Part 3, Chapters 1 through 21, and we think that Napoleon's defeated, but much like a wounded animal, he's going to set his sights on Moscow yet again and try and invade. And if you would remember, most of our major non-war characters are currently holed up in Moscow, throwing salons, pretending like the war has never happened. So what will happen to the Rostovs, Helene, and what about Pierre and Andre? Will we get an updated... Look at their scenario? Well, you'll just have to stay tuned to find out. Until then, always remember to drink and read responsibly. Procet, dear readers. Thank you for listening to Drink and Read. Hosting for this podcast brought to you by Anchor. This podcast can also be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and more. If you have any thoughts or questions, or any beverage recommendations, please feel free to reach out to us on Drink and Read Pod at Instagram. Support of this podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.